0: Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3? That's where we're going to be planting ourselves this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you should uh, use a blue pew Bible in front of you and you'll find Lamentations 3 on page 688. The year was 1863. An 18-year-old Charles Longfellow left his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to board a train to Washington, D.C. He had decided, without telling his family so as not to be deterred, to join President Lincoln's Union Army in the Civil War. Charles was the oldest of six kids. His father was Henry Longfellow, a celebrated poet. And by this time, Henry had been a widow for two years. Two years since his wife, Fanny, died tragically and suddenly after her dress caught fire in their home. Henry got to her too late. Despite his best efforts to extinguish the flames as fast as he could, the severe burns were too much and Fanny passed the next morning. Henry's burns were, that he incurred uh, while extinguishing the flames were so severe that they would forever distort his face, which is the reason why he had a beard for the rest of his life. Following her death, Henry feared that those around him would have, would have him sent to an insane asylum because of how long and how deeply he was grieving the death of his wife. Charles Longfellow would go on to fight in some of the most significant battles in the Civil War, including the Mine Run Campaign in Northern Virginia, where on November 27, 1863, Charles was severely wounded after being shot through the left shoulder. The bullet then traveled across his back, skimmed his spine before exiting under his right shoulder blade. He was carried to New Hope Church and a telegram was sent home to his father, Henry. So at once, Henry set out for D.C. where Charles was transported. And in early December, he came to find that the surgeon would tell him that paralysis might be prolonged in his son and it would be a long recovery if he manages to recover at all. And so on Christmas Day... 1863, this 57-year-old widow of six children, the oldest of which laid by his side, paralyzed in a war in which his country fought against itself. Henry heard the Christmas bells from a nearby church and a group of people singing peace on earth, a phrase out of Luke chapter 2. And with this backdrop, he wrote a poem seeking to capture this moment where the world he observed seemed so different from the words he heard sung. You may recognize this poem, for it over time has been turned into a fairly well-known Christmas song. I want to read part of this poem, and we're going to have it up on the screen. I heard the bells on Christmas Day their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth The cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. We are in the second week of our Advent series entitled Love, and we are seeking to trace from the scriptures to see how this theme of love kind of starts in Genesis where we were last week and now kind of weaves its way all the way up until the birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, in our day, I, I'm reminded nearly every year, almost re-reminded every year, that, that Christmas and, and the whole season is pretty unique. In that it is both a great time of of happiness and just kind of energy. Like everyone just seems to be a little bit happier around Christmas time. Like they don't even know why. There's just kind of this hope that's out there that they're clinging to. And so um, they just love it. It just brings this kind of joy, again, this kind of energy. And yet, the same season is also a time of great grief and loss and just an ache for many. And what strikes me is that the reason for those reactions is the same. The, the reason is love, because uh, how you're feeling is, is really, uh, is there a presence of or an absence of love, a, a love for tradition, a love for family, a love for good memories and, and positive meanings that, that can cause both happiness and grief, and we just know that the, the season of Advent, the season of Christmas can t- so often dominate what's going on in our hearts, uh, even not really even thinking about what, what, what the reason is. And so, listen, and if this year, if you're in a place where, like, your heart is full, where you are happy, where you are encouraged, where you're just loving Christmas, like, praise God for that. Like, Jeff just shared that, right? Like, praise God. There's, there's no need to feel guilty about that. But, but we also know that in our midst, even right in this room, that there are those who are struggling because of the absence of love. We're in a season where it's different, difficult to reconcile what we're experiencing and what we're feeling and then what we're kind of hearing. Even uh, the songs this morning, right, where, where there's just the, the sharp edge of life, maybe something that's happening in your own life or your family, or you just look out in the world, like you just watch the news for 10 minutes, and you're like, man, the world is mocking these songs. And these songs sound great and make us feel good for a few moments inside these walls on a Sunday morning, but you go out and the world just mocks it. Much like it did for Henry Longfellow on Christmas Day, 1863. Well, this morning we're in the Book of Lamentations, and, and, and in it we're going to see another poem, <laughs> another poem who's written by a man who was also struggling to reconcile his situation. And, and the reason why I want to go there is I want to see what does he choose to do in that moment. And I think we would all be served well to, to learn from him this morning. What you're experiencing, and what you're feeling is, is not lining up with what you, what, what, what you know or what you hear that the context of this book lamentations is it's interesting i think especially for us because it's connected to the book of habakkuk which we just finished preaching a few weeks ago all right like don't worry some of you're like don't go back to habakkuk all right we we paid our time like we're past that um, but but listen lamentations was written by a man named jeremiah and jeremiah was a contemporary of habakkuks they were both prophets um, to the nation of Judah during the same period of time. And, and Habakkuk, if you recall, was written around 605 B.C. And it ended by looking ahead to the time that God was going to discipline Judah. He was going to discipline Judah by sending this harsh, brutal army from the east called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And, and Judah, like, it wasn't kind of innocent suffering they were going to like, be under. right? Like they were a, um, far from faithful during this time. They were serving other gods. They were violently committing injustice. They had no fear of the law, no fear for God. They just they figured out how to pay lip service to God and, then just, and just do what they saw was right in their own eyes. They just didn't care. And so Habakkuk ended with this acceptance that after speaking with God that this was God's will... Even though that destruction was coming for their nation, ultimately Habakkuk ends his book by saying, "And yet I will rejoice." And it kind of just showed us this just incredibly deep, mature faith that was put on display. Um, well, twenty years after Habakkuk was written five eighty six BC, this really came to fruition. It wasn't an empty threat. Right King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians would come into uh, Jerusalem with his army, I mean, carry out brutal tactics that destroyed the city, ransacked the temple, carried Israel out in exile, and Jeremiah, who is again a contemporary of Habakkuks, um, responds to this event by sitting down and writing lamentations. It gets its name from its content, right? I mean, it is a book of deep lament, sorrowful words that are written in these poetic stanzas. It is a book that reveals the darkness of the soul. In fact, listen to these verses in chapter 3 of Lamentation, just to give you a little taste of this, a little taste of Lamentations, that uh, these verses come right before the passage we're going to cover this morning. Jeremiah writes, he, meaning God, has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. Like, it doesn't get much darker than Lamentations. Just unfiltered pain and hope that just seems to be all but extinguished. But just after that stanza, like the very next verses, in the middle of this book, there is a stretch of scripture that is among the most oft-quoted passages in the Bible. It's an oasis in the desert. A glimpse of love and a shining of light that pierces the darkness showing love not to just be this kind of surface level feeling but this kind of deep soul level reality for the people of God that is evident and possible in all seasons and so um, that's the backdrop we're going to come across an oasis in the desert like you're traveling you just feel the the gravel in your mouth and you come upon this source of water that's our passage this morning so read with me follow along with me Lamentations chapter 3 We're going to read the whole passage up front, verses 19 through 33. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence. When it is laid on him, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. If I were to have taken the time to read the entire chapter, I think you would even see even more so what I mean by these verses being an oasis in the desert. An oasis of love that proves to be the source of hope for Jeremiah. A source for hope um, for those who are even hurting this Advent season. Those um, maybe of us who are in here who are tempted to think, Man, none of this is for me. It looks great. It sounds great. It's just not for me. Not this year not based on what I'm feeling, not based on what I'm going through. Um, My prayer is that this is not just an oasis for Jeremiah, that this is an oasis for you and for me. And so I want to stay simple this morning. I'm just going to answer three questions. How did Jeremiah get to this oasis of love, if you will? How did he get there? Second, what did he find there? And then third... Where does this lead us today? Okay, so how, what, where? First, how does he get to this place, right? And and I think this is vital. Verse 21 tells us plainly, he is, I mean, this is bottom of the barrel for Jeremiah and for Judah. They are just been overtaken. And then he says in verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Jeremiah, in the midst of the desert, is renewed first in his mind. That's the turning point, where, where this desert leads to an oasis, not because his circumstances changed, okay? Because for Jeremiah and Judah, there will be no change in circumstance for this whole generation. After the fall of Babylon, Israel will be in exile for the next 70 years, most everybody in that generation, except the youngest in uh, the nation, will be will die. They'll die in exile, and it will be the following generations that will be the ones to return back to Jerusalem. So this is not him saying, "My circumstances have changed, and therefore I'm thinking about the, the the steadfast love of the Lord." But rather, despite no change, he himself changes because of what he brings to mind. What he chooses to think. This is crucial for the people of God because there will often be times, and if you're not in it now, just wait a little longer. You will get there, and I will get there, where there is going to be a moment where there's a difference between what you see and what you feel and, and, and what you know. You know what I'm saying by that? Where there's kind of this now deep, spirit-shaped change from the inside out that dwells upon the steadfast love of the Lord. Okay, so if God's love is the water of this oasis in the desert, then the mind is the spring that brings it forth. There was a commentator, I'm forgetting his name, but he, um, he said, You want to know lamentations? Let, let me give you lamentations in one phrase. Um, life is hard, God is good. Okay, so wait, which one is it? Is life hard or is God good? Lamentation says yes. Life is hard. God is good. And do not underestimate the power of your mind for the believer. Because in a culture, and, and including I think this times can leak into a church culture, um, feelings and emotions are not bad, but they are typically way overstated typically way overemphasized and how easy it is to lose sight of the power of the mind to reignite our souls the mind is often associated with just knowledge it's just knowledge cold knowledge and not love and um While I often say that knowledge is not enough to love God, right? Satan knows about God. Demons know about God. They just hate him. So just having knowledge is not going to make you love God. Um, So that's true. But you know what's also true? That knowledge is required to love God. You cannot love God truly if you do not know God rightly. For who he is. So... I'm going to steal an illustration that I heard from a pastor that's probably the illustration that I've remembered really all through the years about kind of the importance of actually knowing God for who he is and not just how we make him up to be. Um, so let's say um, later this month, uh, it's December, right? Yes, later this month, uh, we will be going out to Wisconsin a couple days after um, Christmas we all fly out I stay out for about a week six days Rochelle and the kids will stay out another extra week because they like 30 below in December um, and her family's there so uh, she'll stay out an extra week I think 10 days and then she will come back and um, so let's say um, when they came back and we reunite at the uh, romantic destination of LaGuardia Airport (laughs) Terminal B okay, and Rochelle comes winding around with the kids, and let's say I just run up to Rochelle, and I just fall, collapse at her feet, and I just say, I mean, with people around, tears streaming down my face, like, babe, I've just missed you so much, like, I, I just yearned to be with you, I, like, it hurts so hard to be with, away from you, and those kids who don't sleep for the past week, <laughs> all right, but, and let's say, if I just go to Rochelle, I said, Rochelle, I don't know if it is your jet black hair, or your piercing brown eyes, or that tan olive skin. I just, I just, I just yearn for you. Um, listen, that, let's say that sounds great. Maybe you're like, that sounds terrible. But let's just say for a moment, you thought that it was great. I'm crying. You're like, oh, man, why, why doesn't my man do that? I want that too. Um, but let me tell you why, as good as that would sound, that would not go well for me. Rochelle has blonde hair, (laughs) purple, purple hair right now, all right, but (laughs) in general, blonde hair, okay, Um, she has blue eyes, and um, we need to get suntan lotion as part of our budget during the summer, all right, pale skin, that's just us and who we are, okay, so uh, no matter how great that sounded, that would not go well for me. Because the emotion and emphasizing the emotion does not replace the fact that knowing who she is is what matters and what would matter to her. And in the same way, when we think about God and worshiping God, it, it, uh, being emotional and authentic, and I mean, that is good and well. But if it's not rooted in a right knowledge of the God of the Bible, it's useless. Knowledge is required to love God for who he is. And this is why the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is constantly urging believers to pay attention to what you're thinking. Pay attention to your mind, especially when it comes to who God is. Um, When Jesus was asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? like That's a big question, and he answered it. What's the greatest commandment? Just give it to me. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your what? Mind. Paul urges the church at Rome to, be, to not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then he goes and tells the church at Colossae to, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So you've, you've heard the phrase mind over matter, and, and there, there is a thread of biblical truth in that, that, that what we think and what we dwell on will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, equip us to worship even in the desert. The mind serves as the kindling for our hearts that turn a spark into a blazing inferno of worship for God and for his steadfast love. Renewal of the mind. That's how. Second question. What did Jeremiah find in this oasis after mind renewal? Answer is an overflowing abundance of God's grace and mercy. An overflowing abundance of God's grace and mercy. Grace and mercy that leads to hope. Grace and mercy that leads to patience. Grace and mercy that leads to confidence in how this will all end. Verse 21 again, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Verse 22, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. That is pound for pound probably one of the top five verses quoted in the Bible. Right, nowadays it's usually accompanied with a filtered picture of a sunrise on social media, right? Right. Like, not hating, that's just the facts. Like, that's where you will see it, and it will stand alone. And it is an incredible verse, an incredible truth, even when it's taken on its own. But when you come across that verse in the context of who is writing it, and when he was writing it, a prophet whose nation just got ransacked, a nation who just got carried into exile, not on their way back, on their way in, he says, his mercies are new every morning. That's explosive. That's explosive. That is nearly unbelievable. Like, this wasn't written on a good day. It was written on the worst day of his life. And you know why, just thinking on this, you know why I think God's mercies are new every morning? It's simple. Because if we're following God faithfully in all that we are, we need his mercies to be new every morning. Like, just like we wake up knowing that you're you're, you're probably going to need food that day, so also we need a fresh batch of mercy to thrive in him regardless of our life situation. Just think about this, right? I mean, those who, here's one thing that we're a little bit of a disadvantage at in some ways. Like, we are blessed to know that you probably didn't wake up wondering where you can get your food today. You didn't wake up if you have children wondering how you're going to feed your kids today. And like praise God for that. We don't have to feel guilty for that. But somebody who is waking up and wondering like, man, I just wonder where that meal is going to come from. I wonder, I hope God provides. Something tells me that when you hear the prayer, give us today our daily bread, like that just seems a little more impactful for them. I think they just feel the weight of that a little bit more. And so spiritually, if if you are struggling, if you are struggling just to get through the days, I think in the same way you understand the weight of that verse. Lord, your mercies are new every morning because I need them. And the steadfast love of the Lord causes Jeremiah to bring to mind God. Not just his benefits. Not just uh, some gifts he'll get from him. He brings to mind God himself. Because at the end of the day, all we're going to get is him. And praise God, at the end of the day, all we're going to need is him. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion. He's my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. To quote the 1960s Motown singer Eddie Holland, oh, how sweet it is to be loved by you. What a gift for Jeremiah. Jeremiah. What a gift for all of God's people, for me and for you, to have full access to God, even in the most dire of circumstances. Where even though we may look at the world and we might see relational strife in our families... We might feel anxiety and fear over any number of things. We might just see what's going on in the headlines and just experience fear and anxiety as to what's the world look like a year from now, five years from now, 50 years from now. Maybe you're experiencing trial after trial that in those moments, not after those moments, in those moments, we too can have hope because we've been given a glimpse of the steadfast love that never ceases. Third, Okay, so where does this lead us? Where do we go with this today in this Advent season? Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, for the soul who seeks him. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. After setting his mind on the Lord and all he is and all of his promises, Jeremiah resolves to wait. He says, I will wait faithfully, just like Habakkuk did, just like God's people will always need to do. And it doesn't mean it will be easy. In fact, if we were to keep reading after these verses, it goes dark pretty quick. That's what I mean by oasis in the desert. It's the desert before you get past it, he's back in the desert. But when you get to the bottom, the foundation, Jeremiah resolves, I will wait, I will live faithfully the rest of my days, because while darkness is here, this is not the end. And even if this is the end of my life on earth, I know that's not even the end. Because God does not fail. And he will not cast off his people forever, and he will have compassion. And it was a long wait for Jeremiah and God's people. And I think it reflects that God's people in every time period were waiting for something. Jeremiah was 70 years in exile, then a return back to Jerusalem to start picking the pieces back up, to rebuild the temple, to establish themselves once again as a nation. And even then, after the final word of the Old Testament was written, it was over 400 years of silence, of waiting, of adventing, if we can make that a verb. 400 years until a a star shone in the sky, until a virgin was with child and Jesus Christ was born. And even still, after that moment, it was 30 years of waiting from that birth when Jesus grew to be a man who was baptized in the Jordan, tempted in the desert, and then proclaims, the time is fulfilled. Now repent and believe in the gospel. And then it was three more years of waiting as he kind of fulfills his missions. After teaching about the kingdom of God, he dies so that sinners may be a part of the kingdom of God. Their sins paid for. And then three more days of waiting where Jesus is raised from the dead by the Father and seated at his right hand. And since that moment, the church was born. And the church has carried forth the mission to make disciples for the glory of God ever since, which is the reason why we are here. We are here worshiping here now because men and women were faithful to this mission before us. And now it's our turn to carry it forward to the next generation. And in the meantime, all the while, we wait, we advent. Since the time Jesus ascended to the time he returns again, the period of the church is what theologians call already not yet. Christ has already come and defeated the power and authority of the enemy on the cross. He has already freed sinners from the slavery of sin, but he has not yet fully established his kingdom, and so we wait. And we wait for what the book of Revelation describes. We're going to put a verse up on the screen. This is what we are waiting for. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Advent is not just meant for us to remember the birth of Christ, but it's to propel us forward with the courage toward the return of Christ to propel us with courage, right? In the meantime, because we're waiting with a purpose, we're waiting in all seasons, in all circumstances, and the purpose is to carry out the work of making disciples. We don't wait idly. We wait faithfully. We wait as the tools of God to win more and more people to Christ while there is still time. And in this place, we are inwardly strengthened by these people in order to have an outward impact, so last week, I casted out a challenge. I casted out a challenge to say, hey, what is, who's one person God has called you to reach this Advent season? Who's one person that God has called you to just be ordinary means to make an extraordinary impact? And so I want to share with her permission, Rochelle was sitting here when I just kind of casted that out. And um, kind of to her surprise even, God just in that moment brought to her mind a woman that she worked with about four years ago. And they, they were close at the time, but they've kind of since lost touch. And they haven't, I don't think, he even spoken in maybe two or three years. And then the service ended, right? And, and then the kids start running around, and you go home, and the week gets going, and it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind. So she had this moment, had this desire, but then, you know, the week happens. We all know what that's like. Friday afternoon It's my day off. Rochelle was planning on going to a grocery store that's a little further away that she prefers. uh, But the day got away from us. And so late in the afternoon, a day that she never goes to the grocery store, at a time she never goes to the grocery store, she says, you know what, I'm just going to go to stop and shop real quick and pick up a few things. So she goes. And who does she run into in the aisle? Then the woman that God placed on her heart last Sunday who then said to Rochelle, her words to Rochelle, this is so funny, I never come here. I never come to this grocery store. I just had to get a couple things that came, and they found each other in the aisle and talked for 20 minutes. Rochelle was just able to share, like, man, this is crazy guy that just put you on my heart, and then she told Rochelle, I want to come to Grace on Christmas Eve, and so if you want to chalk that up, like, man, that's so random, and that's a great coincidence, like, (laughs) man, go for it, like. God's at work, and he's got this thing rigged. And when we're waiting for his return, he wants to use us. We just need to be willing. If only we'd have the grace to receive it. And so we set our minds on this, on the steadfast love of the Lord, and we renew our hope. This is what Jeremiah did in 586 B.C., This is what Henry Longfellow did in 1863. If you were tracking along with that poem, you might have noticed I purposely left off the final stanza. And so, I want to read it now in closing, with the final stanza. We'll just back it up a couple from where we started before. Again, follow on the screen. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Listen. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know whether you're enjoying the fruit of love this Advent season or whether you're grieving over the absence of it. Maybe you are in between stanzas. Maybe you can hear the cannons roaring, and they are drowning out the Christmas bells, and my urge to you is hang tight. Wait well. The cannons will stop. And when they do, you will hear the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. Let's pray.